Well, good morning, morning to you folks. We're glad that you are here at uh, Forest Hill South Park. We are one church in multiple locations, and we're glad that you've chosen to be here at this location. Also to say hello to those who are watching online as well. Did you like that song? Now we got blood. I love that song. I love the way they, they did it. It also sets up our message for today about something that we can all relate to. When people hurt us, sometimes our desire is for more than just justice. Sometimes we also have to deal with the desire for vengeance, revenge. Retaliation. It's a part of our, our culture. It shows up in so many different ways that we try to deal with those particular types of problems, and we find it very difficult to. As a matter of fact, we have a kind of a golden rule of retaliation. It goes something like this. Do unto others just like they've done it to you. Right? Or do unto others and make them pay for what they've done to you. Or do unto others so they'll never do it to you like that again. There's a story about a little boy. He's seven years old, and he is screaming in pain. And the mother runs into the room and finds that his two-year-old sister has grabbed onto a tuft of his hair, and she ain't letting go. And that two-year-old has that, like, innocent little grin, like she's having a good time with this. But the seven-year-old is in pain. The mother runs in and very firmly and very calmly pries loose the two-year-old's fingers from the, from the boy's hair. He's kind of crying in pain. And the mother comforts him by saying, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. She didn't know that it hurts you. She, doesn't, she does not know or understand that it hurts you. And the little boy received that and said, okay. And then after she left the room about a couple steps, the little girl's now screaming in blue murder. The mother runs back into the room and says, what happened? And he said, she knows now. She knows now. <laughs> the law of retaliation. It saturates every aspect and every dimension of our culture, doesn't it? Courtroom, the, the corporate office, streets, families. It's all a part of who we are, unfortunately. It's saturated. And part of, the, part of the, where we find it the most saturated, I think, is in our entertainment, like in movies and TV shows. We see that aspect that we want something a little bit more than justice. For instance, in the TV show 24 with Jack Bauer. Right? Jack kind of crosses that line every once in a while to get something done, and we're not too disappointed that he does that because we got to bring it, right? And so in my family, the, the phrase that we have for Jack Bauer is, Jack don't play. <laughs> Jack does not play. Or I remember when I was uh, in, in the uh, 80s, and I was a teenager, watching Rocky Three. Y'all remember the Rocky shows? Rocky Three, and Rocky's going up against Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T. And Rocky has lost the eye of the tiger, okay? So he's not a match for Mr. T. It all gets beaten later on. After Adrian helps him to get it back, Rocky's now standing in the ring, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I'm in the movie theater watching this. Standing in the ring, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and Mr. T, Clubber Lang says, I'm gonna bust you up. And Rocky says, steel eye, looking him right in the eye, says, go for it. I'm like, okay, goosebumps. Here we go, bringing it. And sure, they get into the match and things kind of turn and then Rocky turns around and starts giving Mr. T what he deserves. As a matter of fact, when we're watching it, we don't want Mr. T just to get beat. We want him to get a beaten, right? And here's the deal. In the movie theater, everybody in the movie theater is on their feet and they're cheering and they're chanting Rocky's name and encouraging him to go. It's a fake fight, but we're out there just going crazy. And when Rocky wins, we win as well too. We're cheering. We're giving it. It's a fake fight. But something in that Something in that calls was say, I want something more than just justice. Or how about the movie The Untouchables? With Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, and Sean Connery plays Malone. And Sean Connery basically says to Elliot Ness, he says, you want to get Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun, he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue, that's the Chicago way. Or how about Liam Neeson in The Taken? And taken, right? This man who lost his daughter, his daughter was abducted, and Liam Neeson is on the phone with the abductors, and here's what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have 
are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Bring it. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, oh yeah, yeah, let's get that going. Or one of my favorite movies, Tombstone. Tombstone with Kurt Russell. The Earp Boys against the Clanton gang. And after they thought that Earp may be out of the picture, they're at the station and they take out one of the Clanton gang, Stillwell, and Kurt Russell shows up, White Earp, and he has Ike Clanton on the ground and he says to Ike Clanton, he says, well, Ike, you call down the thunder, well, now you got it. He pulls back the shirt, shows the badge and says, you see that? United States Marshal. The Cowboys are finished. I see a red sash. I kill a man wearing it. And then he says to them, now you run, you cur. You run and you tell all the other curs that the law is coming. I'm coming and hell's coming with them. I'm like, oh yeah, that's breaking it. And of course, he then cleans house. There's something in that that we just enjoy. We love to see not just justice, but something a little bit more. And you recognize that that is evidence of the fact that something's broken on the inside of us. Something's wrong. That we want more than justice, that we want revenge, we want vengeance, we want them to pay for what they've done. We want to be able to return the hurt that came to us. We understand that something is, is wrong and we understand that something needs to be fixed to make what's wrong right, but we want to go even further than simply just that. In the 2016 movie that's coming up, Batman versus Superman, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And in this movie, however, from the trailers, what we got is Bruce Wayne feels that he needs to bring Superman to justice for the collateral damage that the Superman's fight with General Zod in the previous movie, uh, movie occurred. And he's having this conversation with Alfred. And in the trailer, we hear Bruce Wayne say something about Superman, like, I must destroy him. I'm like, what is going on here? And with Alfred, Alfred's having this conversation with Bruce. And he says to Bruce this. He says, Bruce, that's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of power, powerlessness that turns good men cruel. And there it is. Somehow that there's something in us that when we exceed the desire for justice, as a matter of fact, this is personal vengeance masquerading as a pursuit of justice. That for the wrongs that someone has done to me or to people that I love or people that are around me, we feel the need for more than simply just justice. And it shows up in schoolyards. It shows up on the streets. Road rage, crimes of passion, racial and religious warfare that's taking place where there's escalation upon escalation of retaliation for hostilities. We understand that something is wrong, but we want more than just justice. The bottom line is this. Because of what you did to me, I'm going to make you pay. We see it operate operative in so much of our society. It's the natural, expected way that we deal with things. So therefore, the need for what's called lex talionis. Lex talionis is an ancient code that shows up in the Mesopotamian region, near Eastern culture, around 2000 BC. 
As a matter of fact, the earliest writings of that are in what's called the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi is a Babylonian king who died 1750 BC, about 100 years before Moses shows up on the scene. And the Code of Hammurabi with Lex Talionis, the law of retaliation, actually is a step up from the barbarism that was going on in that particular culture. In those days, if you just did anything, you could lose your life because a person could feel as if you offended them, you did something wrong, you stole something, you insulted them, and you could lose your life. The Code of Hammurabi basically says, no, we're going to make sure that the punishment meets the offense. That's what the law of retaliation is, let's tell you, that the punishment meets the offense and so that we avert this pursuit for personal vengeance and, and blood feuds. It's practiced in a number of different ways. In God's community, when Moses comes on the scene and God brings his community, God affirms and authorizes Lex Talionis as one way of dealing with tension and conflict in interpersonal relationships. He basically affirms it. So the people of Israel, they didn't get this from the culture, but that God authorized and affirmed this to them. And so they got that God said, this is how I want you to operate in your culture, in the holy covenant community. God's telling them how they're going to live when they get to the promised land. So we're going to take a look at what God said. So in the honor of reading the sacred words of God, if you are able, may I invite you to stand to your feet and let's take a look together at this significant passage. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. The words of the Lord. You may be seated. Tough stuff. God affirms the Lex Talionis among his people as one way, and there are several things that God affirms in this passage. He affirms, number one, the dignity of humanity. The dignity of humanity, he affirms by saying that if a person puts to death another person in murder, then that person should also be put to death. Why? You see it in Genesis chapter six, 9, verse 6, where God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Here's what distinguishes mankind from every other aspect of the created order. Mankind is the only one in the created order that God has given to him an aspect of God's own nature. That man has been given the image of God. The moral image of who God is, man is to reflect that in all man does. That's where we get our value from. Not simply because we came out of the ground, but because we were made by God to bear and reflect the character and the nature of God. Therefore, when a man wantonly takes the, man, uh, the life of another man, he is saying something to God about that image. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing is that the passage that we just read falls right in the middle of a particular situation happening right there in Leviticus chapter 24. Turns out, when you read a few verses ahead, uh, before that, that there is an Israelite who also happens to have an Egyptian as a father and an Israelite as a mother. This man is going through a dispute and an argument with another Israelite, and he 
blasphemes the name of God. We're not exactly sure what that means, but the word for blasphemy there is that he treats the name and the character of God with disrespect or, or dishonor. He despises the name in such a way. And Moses and the leaders, they take the man into custody to figure out, okay, what does God want us to do with this individual? And God rules on it and basically says that whoever blasphemes, dishonors, disrespects the name of God, his character, his essence, that the community is to put their hand on him, assigning guilt, and then the community is to stone that person to death. Towards the end of that chapter, a few verses after what I just read, it says the people obeyed the command of the Lord and they put that man to death. In the middle of that, God's talking about this particular law. Here's where I think the correlation is, which is amazing. The penalty for blaspheming the name, the essence, the character of God is equal to what happens when a person wantonly takes a human life. That means that there's an equivalent value of what happens to a murderer and what happens to someone who disrespects God, which means that mankind has been given by God a supreme aspect of value and dignity because God has given to man an essence of himself. One commentator would say this, that when we murder, when we abuse another human being, we are, in essence, in one way, blaspheming and disrespecting God. That's amazing that you and I, as human beings, our value in God's sight is extraordinary. That's an expression of the nature of God. Shows up in the next affirmation in that God affirms the priority of human life. In the next verse, verse 18, he says this, whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. That means there's to be a restitution. There's to be a replacement. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. It's interesting that even in the Code of Hammurabi, that in certain applications of it, it was very clear that sometimes property was more valuable than humanity. That people could make rules and they could carry out sentences that actually showed that animals and property had greater value than humanity. God says, no, in my people, my estimation of humanity is that humanity has a supreme value to those that are in the animal kingdom. So contrary, contrary to many in our culture who believe that mankind, human life, is as valuable as whales or dogs or cows or members of the endangered species, God would say, no, no, animal life, valuable, but human life, supreme. Human life, more than that. Why? Because mankind carries the divine DNA of God, unlike any other creature. There is a qualitative distinction between us and the animal kingdom. So regardless of how much you love your pet, your value to God is greater than the pet, than the animal. God's making sure that there's an understanding that there's a priority. Human beings matter deeply to God. But also, God would also affirm the equality of humanity. In verse 19, or verse 22, sorry, he says, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and the native, for I am the Lord your God. The equality of humanity. Again, some of the cases in the Lex Talionis in the Hammurabi Code is that it's applied differently to different people. Different strokes, for different folks, that depending upon your social standing, you could have a greater application of that law to your life. God says to his people, no, in my covenant community, 
because this is how he sees humanity, every human being is equal. Every human being has the right to justice. Every human being is accountable to God. And that regardless of your gender, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your racial background, your ethnic background, your religious background, everybody in my community, they're all equal, from the old to the young. That no one can hide behind their riches. No one can hide behind anything of who they are because in God's eyes, every human being is equal in value. Why? Because every human being carries the image of God. Yes, sin has distorted it, but it's not destroyed. Every human being carries the image of God, and therefore they are to be treated and regarded equally, regardless of their socioeconomic status or background. And you and I, we see that affirmed in our country's foundations, don't we? Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, obvious, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God will also then express the limitations for retaliation in this passage. The limitations for retaliation. In verse 19, he says this. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Understand again, this is a step up from the culture that they're living in. And at this particular point, there were different offenses that met with different punishments. God says here that the punishment must meet the crime and no more than that. It must not exceed the offense. God wants his people to live civilly. God wants his people to live with a proper expression of justice and mercy. So much so that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, God establishes cities of refuge. Cities of refuge is where a person can go for sanctuary if something happened and they created or did an offense unintentionally. So for instance, the story in Deuteronomy 19, you're out chopping wood and the head of your ax flies off the handle and hits the person that you're chopping wood with and kills them. The family members may not know the whole picture, and all they want is your blood. And so they're after you. You can go to one of these cities of refuge, tell your story to the leaders, and the city has to take you in and protect you, and that the Avengers cannot get you because it was unintentional. That's the intention of the cities of refuge, for people who were unintentional to find sanctuary and refuge. However, if the murder was premeditated and intentional, and you ran to a city of refuge, and they found out about it, got the whole facts of the, of the story... They, the leaders, had to give you up to the Avengers. Because God basically says, there is not to be anyone who hides behind these cities to cover up their heinous crimes against the, the public. God wants to make sure that even though there are times where the victim could carry out the sentence, I mean, the, the Avengers could carry out the sentence because of the victim's death, that it was never to be done without there being some kind of judicial process. In Deuteronomy 19, he says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office. The judges shall inquire diligently. There were times where the avenger 
had the right to carry out the sentence of death, but not before it went through a judicial process where other people were able to hear the case, they were to render a verdict, they were to determine a sentence, and then that sentence would be carried out. That simply because somebody hurts you, you do not have the right to be the judge and the jury. Other people have to be part of the process. This is one of the ways that we de-escalate barbarism. We de-escalate revenge and vengeance in God's holy covenant community. That's the Old Testament perspective of what God expected for his people as one way. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, takes it even further. To his followers and to his followers alone, he says these words. And so let me just go ahead and say this to you. If you are here today and you do not have a born-again, saved relationship, a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior, number one, as always, thank you for coming. Please keep on coming in and learn with us. But these truths, insights, do not necessarily apply to you. They apply to those of us who profess to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He is speaking to his disciples. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5 in this aspect of what do we do with retaliation. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let me just stop right there for a second. Let me help you understand what's going on. For the previous 400 years prior to Jesus Christ, the Pharisees had taken these laws of the Old Testament and they had perverted them, inserting into it their interpretations and what they wanted to see for society so that these laws in their teaching no longer reflected the heart of God for his people. But it reflected tradition. It reflected the way that the religious leaders saw it. It's not so much what God intended for his people. So now Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, not in opposition to what God said, but in opposition to how it's being interpreted, I, this is the authority of Jesus Christ, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And as I read that, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've read this passage hundreds of times. And every time I read it, I get a gulp. What is Jesus implying here? Is he implying something of what happened maybe with the, the boxer? You probably heard the story about a boxer who became a born-again Christian. And he decided that he was going to live a life that honored Christ, but his old cronies, the guys from the, from the neighborhood, they found out about it, and they're going to test him. And so they confronted him on the street one night, and they said, so, here you become a born-again Christian. Well, the Bible says that if you get hit on the right cheek, you should turn the other. And the boxer said, well, the Bible does say that. And, and before he could get the word out of his mouth, the guy hits him on the right cheek. He pops him on the right cheek, and it knocks the boxer to the ground, and he's stunned and dazed, and he gets back up, and the guys are like, what are you going to do? And the boxer gets up, dusts himself off, and says, the scripture says that I need to turn the other cheek. And so before he can get the words out, bam, on the other side. The guy hits him again on the other side, knocks him to the ground. And he and his friends are just laughing. <laughs> what are you going to do now? The boxer gets up, dusts himself off, and the guy's saying, so what are you? And before this guy can get the word out, the boxer rears up, takes everything he has, and pow, pops him, knocks the guy to the ground. When the guy eventually comes out of his unconsciousness, he looks at the boxer and he says, well, I don't understand what happened here. I thought Jesus said that you should turn the other cheek. And the boxer says, yes, Jesus did say that, but after that he left no further instructions. <laughs> Is that what Jesus meant? 
Sounds right to me. <laughs> we hope that's what he meant. To be slapped on the cheek in those days, it's not so much about the physical, but it's to be insulted. When you get slapped on the cheek, I mean, you'd rather get hit anyplace else on your body, but to be slapped in the face constitutes one of the worst offenses to the dignity of a person. And so it's basically assaulting who you are, your dignity. Here's what Jesus is saying, ultimately, that when somebody assaults you in that manner, you are not to retaliate. You are not to retaliate. He'll go even further when you summarize all of it. He basically says, you should more rather be ready to take another offense than to do anything offensive. You would more rather be the offended than an offender in retaliation to what they've done. That what comes out of your life, what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of your body should not be offensive in what they've done. You should be ready to take the offense. You should go the extra mile in making sure that your response is not one out of retaliation, but out of a completely different characteristic. Jesus says, and I laugh because this is tough. Jesus says that when somebody insults you or hurts you, you should be ready to offer them mercy. Mercy, that's deserved punishment that you withhold. That you should be ready to offer them grace. That is undeserved blessing and benefit to that person. Why? Because that is exactly what God gives to us. Every single breath. But I got to tell you, it gets worse. Here's what Jesus says in verse 43 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, once again, not in opposition to what God intended, but to what's taking place in the interpretation. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Yep, I've heard that one. And hate your enemy. That came out of the tradition. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Love your enemy? That makes sense. No, it doesn't. That's not how we operate. We don't love our enemies. Maybe we tolerate them, but we don't love them. Jesus is calling us. He's calling us to take a quantum leap way beyond Lex Talionis into something completely Different. Why? So that we can prove to the world that we actually belong to a God who allows the sunshine and the rain to fall on the evil and the righteous at the same time. And that we prove ourselves to be children of that kind of God. That we do things completely opposite. And that we're ready to offer the mercy and the grace that we love. Gosh, we love our enemies in a way that resembles dad. that reflects our Lord, where we refuse to retaliate. Instead, we offer them something completely different. So that when people scratch their heads and they look at our response, and they're like, how in the world? And we say, that's, the, yeah, that's it. We're not of this world. We didn't get this from here. Our citizenship is completely different. 
We have a new king. We have a new master. We belong to a different community. And we operate out of the new identity in the new kingdom under the ultimate supreme king. That's why we do it. With the desire and the hope that that will lead them to embrace or to encounter the reality of the living Christ. Not an easy thing, but it's what Jesus calls us to and empowers us to. Because those who have made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, and Jesus resides here in our life, there is no room here for vengeance. There's no room here for revenge because we serve one who took the justice and the wrath of almighty God for us while we were enemies of God. And he calls us to do the same. Paul in Romans chapter 12 would affirm that he would say this, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. That's from the book of Proverbs. And one of the interpretations of that is that when we do those good things to people who have wronged us, we actually compound and magnify their guilt and their shame with the hopes of leading them to penitence and repentance of what they've done. Paul closes by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our rhythm. That's our mode as we follow the example of Jesus Christ. So bringing it all together, the summary of all that, I would say this, that the expectation for kingdom citizens is number one, we live above and beyond the law. We live above and beyond. In other words, let's tell you, or whatever everybody says is normal for society, we say, got it, we're gonna be law-abiding citizens, but we're gonna be more than law-abiding, we will be love-expressing citizens. The law is the minimum. Christ calls us to something way higher much more sublime. And we are going to live above and beyond the law. We live in a way that we refuse to retaliate. It's a choice we make. We refuse to retaliate. We will not turn evil or give evil for evil because our master has forbidden us to avenge ourselves. And he's a model. Jesus on the cross, suffering for our sins, taking the wrath of God, he had every power, every right to call it quits, to call every force in heaven in his defense and end the whole show. He had the right and the power to do so. And Jesus exerted more strength than you and I can even imagine by staying in place for our benefit and for the glory of God. This is the one who calls us and says, you must not retaliate. That means not only just physically, (laughs) But what we do when we kind of retaliate talking with other people about that person. We dump and dish stuff on our social media. We write nasty little letters. We give them cold looks. We avoid them. We treat them with contempt. Jesus says, no, retaliation of no kind is acceptable in my kingdom of my children. 
as followers of Jesus Christ, we decide that we're going to entrust justice to God. We're going to entrust them, what they've done, and injustice to God because only God has the total picture from an eternal perspective of what's going on. You understand this, that the person who offended you, God doesn't see them the way you do. He does not see them the way that you do. And we live to trust our life and our hurt and our pain to a perspective way greater than ours. And by the way, this Jesus who came Meek and mild, meek is not weak, it's controlled strength, but humble and gentle. The one who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. When he comes again, he's not coming gentle. He will come again as judge. The same Jesus who came the first time, the next time he will come back as judge. And it ain't going to be for the first few minutes, kumbaya. Jesus will execute justice when he comes back again. So we as his followers, knowing that that day is coming or knowing the day that we may see him before he comes here, we can surrender the issues that we are tempted to resolve on our own strength and turn that over completely to him. Because we will defer to love. We will defer to do things motivated by love and not controlled by evil. So rather than seething with anger and bitterness and resentment and a desire for vengeance, we choose love above the law. We choose to rise above the character of those who have hurt us, to not stoop or to repeat what they've done, but to live differently, to live better. We refuse to allow an opportunity to pass where we get to express the goodness of who Christ is. We choose love above the law, which gets us all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19. David Chadwick, a couple of weeks ago, preached on the, the law of loving your neighbors. And this is what God always intended for his people. And here's what it says, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what, that's what God always wanted. That's what God always desires for his people, especially when we say in Israelite time, who are your neighbors? Those are the people that are in your covenant community. But if you ask Jesus the question, Jesus, who is my neighbor? What's Jesus' answer? Everybody. Everybody. And we're to express that love. So here are some remedies for retaliation, that if you get confronted or hurt, some things to think about. As what do you do? How do you respond to that? Number one, I would say this. Stop, drop, and pray. When we get on fire, right, that's part of what was said when we get on fire, so stop, drop, and roll. I say stop, drop, and pray because when we're hurt, heat's on us. We want to do something about that, stop, which means pause. Take a time to chill. Take a time to pause, to stop and consider what you're about to do. Do not act out of that injury. Do not act out of that hurt. Stop and then drop, which means to humble yourself before God. Get off the high horse. Get off the bench where you are the judge and the jury. Humble yourself before God. See yourself in the light of God's majesty, in the light of God's authority, that you make a decision based on, first of all, humbling yourself before the judge. And then pray. Pray. Ask God for help. Because quite frankly, folks, this stuff, I'll just tell you honestly, that stuff, it's impossible. This stuff, I cannot do that in my own strength. And so we must ask God for help. 
There are times in my relationship with God where I do get angry. People do hurt me or situations are not going the way that I want to and I'll find a room or I'll find a place where I can be alone and I let God have it. I'm not doing it at him, I'm doing it before him. And I'm just telling God, blah, 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 I'm upset, I can't believe they did this, who do they think they are, blah, blah, blah. I just, I just let it all out. But I practice giving God the other half of the inning. I get it all out and after I've gotten it all out, I then say, okay, God, now it's your turn. And when I start that, my blood pressure starts to reduce. My tone changes. And based on what I know about Scripture and based on what the Holy Spirit places in my heart, I begin practicing and speaking the words that reflect God's nature. And the end of the prayer is something like this. God, I know what you want. (laughs) I know what I should do. Please help me. Please help me. God, you you, you know I don't want to do this, but it's what you want. So please help me. Stop, drop, and pray. Something else that you can do is to revisit God's mercy and grace in your life. Take the time to reflect on how how good God is, how good God has been. Everything that you've received from God, for instance, the blessings, daily mercies and compassions that God has given to you. Or take the time to reflect back on what Jesus Christ did at the cross when you deserved what Jesus got. Remember the magnitude of his love. Can I tell you this? Some of the most vindictive people I know are people that rarely ever offer sincere gratitude. You ever notice that? People who never really say thank you for anything, they have nothing to be thankful for. They're always whining. They're always complaining. They're always vindictive. They're looking for an opportunity to make things right for themselves because they got no gratitude. Folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, that not ought to be us. We have opportunity every breath of our life to be thankful, to revisit and to think about God with all that he's done and to allow his mercy, his grace, his love, his peace to be the filter of our minds through which we make decisions when people hurt us. To let who God is and how he has been to you influence our thoughts and our reactions. And I also say this, choose to refuse to retaliate. Choose to refuse to retaliate. It's coming. Someone this week, someone today, someone this month, they're going to do something that's going to hurt you and there's going to be that temptation to get even. Choose right now. Make a decision. Just right now. I'm going to choose because of all that you are, all that you've given to me, Jesus, I refuse to retaliate. Your first test is going to be when you get to the parking lot at the end of the service. <laughs> On the way out, the traffic. It's going to be the first place. Because I know how you all are. You're, 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 you're doing exactly the right rhythm of, of, of traffic and somebody wants to kind of come in and you're like, you ain't going to me. I know how it is. I've heard testimonies of people who've said that. Anyway. Decide right now when you leave this place. Nope, I'm not going to. The roast can burn. I'm not going to be offensive. You got an encounter with somebody this week at the office that you know is coming? Someone that you're going to go home to? I'm sorry. Choose right now and refuse to retaliate. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that if, in this particular aspect, that that means that if you're being beaten up on, that you just let people keep beating up on you. That you let people continue to abuse you. We would say this. If you're being abused, get out of the situation. Get to a safe place. Christ would not say, hey, just keep taking. No, get to a safe place. The issue is, do not 
retaliate. Choose right now. I'm not going to do that. And then release the injurer to God. Release the injurer to God. Let God handle it. Let God take that. He has a perspective that you and I don't. Our job is to love them. And so even there, the prayer that we pray, can I suggest a prayer for the people that are injuring you? The prayer is not, dear God, suck them. That's not the prayer. Because Jesus didn't say that. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, not pray against those who persecute you. Right? That's impossible outside of his strength. Pray this. Dear God, I pray that they would humble themselves before you, before you humble them. Because it's not nice that other way. I pray this. Dear God, I pray that they would acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord sincerely on this side of eternity before they have to on that other side. Because let me tell you something, folks. You wouldn't wish hell on your worst enemy. You wouldn't. Because the scripture says, 2 Peter 3, 9, God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That should be our desire too. No matter how bad that, because quite frankly, compared to God, we're bad. We leave them to God, we release them to God, and we pray for their salvation. Because folks, the people that hurt you need Jesus Christ, like you do. That's how we live. That's how we roll. That's who we are. Amen?